0: That's what we're tempted to do. Can we just skip to the good part? We know He died. We know what He accomplished in His death. We've seen that and we're rejoicing in that and now we're just waiting for Him to rise from the dead. But listen, we can't just skip to the good part because we're going to miss a really good part if we do. Something that's integral and central to the Gospel message. And what is that? That is His burial. His burial. And we're going to see three things about His burial this morning in this text that Stands out. Number one, we're going to see a courageous request in verses 57 and 58. Secondly, a significant burial, verses 59 to 61. And then an ironic security in verses 62 to 66. So let's go back to verse 57, point number one, and see this courageous request. It says in verse 57, <coughs> excuse me, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who was also a disciple of Jesus. So Jesus is, is now dead. His body is on the cross, and it's, it's coming to evening time, which is probably sometime between 3 and 6 p.m. It's before the sun is going down. And you might remember that the, the sundown is the mark of a new day in the Jewish calendar. And so the Sabbath is literally about to begin. And so here this, this rich man... Matthew makes sure that, that we understand, named Joseph. He's, he, we, we know a few things about him, not only from this text, but from some of the other Gospels. One, he's a rich man. So we know definitely that God does the impossible, right? Camels do go through eyes of needles. And so he, he's a very wealthy man. And in this day, that's significant because <laughs> there, there was no middle class. Actually, up until about a few hundred years ago, Pretty much with the, the, this great experiment of freedom we have in the United States of America, around the world, there was no such thing as a middle class. You were either rich or you were poor. And if you were rich, you were rich. And if you were poor, you were certainly poor. He's on the wealthy side. He has much wealth. His name is Joseph, the Hebrew name Yosef, which means God will add. Interesting and beautiful name. Matthew points out that he's a disciple of Jesus. I find it interesting that there are two different Josephs, two different God will adds that bookend the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, we we see through this this particular care that the Father had over the life of Christ throughout his whole life, but I. I, I take note that God added a very good and righteous man who did the courageous thing to care for the young Messiah as he was born. He could have put Mary away as he would betrothed to her, but he obeyed valiantly against, I'm sure, much scorn and ridicule. And so God will add, this Joseph cares for the young Jesus as he was born, and we don't know when that Joseph died, but at some point it seems that he did pass away. And now, at his death, comes another, God will add, to care for the body of Jesus Christ, which is dead. This Joseph, we also see in the different Gospels, which, by the way, the significance of the burial is shown in how it is is told to us in each of the four Gospels. <coughs> We've seen what Matthew says. Mark tells us this about Jesus. Joseph in in chapter 15, verse 43, that he was a respected member of the council. He's part of the Sanhedrin. And he was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, Mark says. Luke tells us that, again, he was a member of the council, that he was a good and righteous man, and he makes note that he had not consented to their decision and action. Whose decision and action? The council's. Remember, the Sanhedrin is the one who condemned Christ. This Joseph is a part of that group. We don't know what was going on behind the scenes, if he was fighting or making an argument for it, but he certainly did not consent to their decision nor their actions. It also tells us in Luke that he was looking for the kingdom of God. And then in John 19, verse 38, John makes note of something interesting. He says that this Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, just like Matthew does. However, he says, but secretly, for fear of the Jews. So here is Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, a good man, a righteous man, a member of the council, not agreeing with what they're doing. He is a disciple of Jesus. He's become a follower of Jesus. We don't know exactly how deep that went, but we know it was deep enough for him to come out of the closet, if you will, with his faith. No longer a secret. He was hiding it because he feared what might that mean to his riches and his wealth? What what might that mean to his reputation among the other Jews? But he does this bold action, and you might not understand, let me explain why it's so bold. Verse 58, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Mark tells us what was going on behind the scenes in, in chapter 15 when he says he took courage. He plucked up the courage and went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. That word, it comes from the root word to to take courage, tolmao, which means to boldly dare. To take heart and to do something that's terribly difficult to do. Why is it so difficult to, to go to the Roman governor? Well, for multiple reasons. One, it wasn't considered politically correct for a member of the Sanhedrin. He was already, you see, a little nervous about what, what following Jesus might mean and now coming out of his secret, no longer making it a secret, but boldly going and with courage to, to the Roman governor could have gotten in a lot of trouble with the, the Sanhedrin. Would they resent him? Would they kick him out? Would they exclude him? He's out of the club. That could have been life-changing for him. Also, it's very dangerous to associate yourself with a convicted criminal executed for sedition against Rome. It was a big deal. It was against the Roman law. You didn't just go care for the bodies of executed men. And Pilate could have easily said no. He could have ordered Jesus' body to remain on the cross and to hang there in the sun and to let the sun do what it does to dead bodies. <coughs> Be picked apart by The birds of the air torn apart by scavenger dogs. (coughs) Thank you. I had a really bad cold recently, and I thought it was over the cough, but it's back. The animals, scavenger dogs, could have come in. And um, what normally happened in a crucifixion was the bodies stayed on the crosses. And that was purposeful. That was as a warning for anyone else to not do what the guy hanging on that cross did. And, and again, we think of crucifixion, we, our minds immediately go to Christ. But, but in the ancient world, it, that didn't necessarily, it was a common thing. In, in fact, in stories of history, is, it tells us that in, in AD 70, in the fall of Jerusalem, when Rome came in and just ransacked the place, the Romans were crucifying up to 500 Jews a day. So thousands and thousands and thousands of men throughout history have been crucified. Pilate could have easily said, no, I'm keeping them on that cross. He's gonna, the people are going to learn the lesson that they need to learn. Or he could have, what is often done, is if the bodies were taken down, they were often thrown into some mass grave that other criminals and no names were a part of. No honor, just thrown in a dump with a heap of others. And that could have certainly happened, but Pilate he could have charged Joseph with siding with the enemy. And so this, this helps us understand, Joseph is very bold here. He's staking his reputation, yes, even his very life on going to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. He went public when it was very dangerous to do so. It's no longer a secret that he's following the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also interesting, it doesn't tell us here in Matthew, but John lets us know that he wasn't alone in what he was doing in his courage. In John 19.39, it says, Nicodemus also, you remember who Nicodemus was if you've read the book of John. John chapter 3, Nicodemus is the one who comes in the cover of night to Jesus and starts asking him questions. He wants to know, what are you talking about, this whole born again thing? What does that mean? And Jesus has this conversation. We see Joseph and we see Nicodemus, who also was a member of the Sanhedrin, now following Jesus and coming out publicly with it. Nicodemus, John says, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. The Joseph, and the boldness of Joseph certainly throws me back to the Christmas story of understanding the first Joseph and how he cared for his son. And now this Joseph cares for the Son of God. And then also Nicodemus and Joseph bring this myrrh. Have you heard that before? It's Christmas season. We hear the story often, Matthew 2 Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. We sang about it this morning. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh. It's Joseph at the beginning, Joseph at the end. Myrrh at the beginning, myrrh at the end. As Nicodemus brings it, it's almost as if Matthew wants us to never forget something. He came to die. He came to die. Myrrh was a very expensive spice. It was brought in from Arabia. It had two main purposes, perfuming and embalming. It's also the same substance that was mixed in the wine that they offered Jesus on the cross, Mark tells us. That sour wine they had mixed in myrrh. And here the item comes full circle. The magi had presented the gift to him at his birth. He receives a taste of it right before he dies, and now they embalm his body in it. Along with being a courageous man, this Joseph was a servant. He was a loving man. See, rich men usually don't do work, the work of a slave. But here we see a rich man preparing Jesus' body for proper and honorable burial. In essence, he's he's dirtying his clean hands during the Passover, no less. How? By touching Jesus' unclean body. And yet, in the midst of that, he's actually, ironically, obeying the law. Because in Deuteronomy 21-22, it says, if a man <coughs> has committed a crime punishable by death, he is put to death and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your lamb that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Jesus never sinned, and yet he took upon himself the sin of the world. And being the one who who took the curse upon himself, Being a curse for us by hanging on the tree, Nicodemus and Joseph do what God had instructed them to do. He's to be buried that same day. He served the servant of servants. He served the one who came to serve by laying his life down for others. Joseph, who took and wrapped and laid and cut and rolled and went away. Notice all the action verbs in this few verses. He is embodying Jesus' sermon to His disciples in John 13 and His his model of washing their feet. He loved the greatest man ever to live in the least greatest moment of that man's life. He's courageous. He's kind and His actions of courage and kindness echo the, the woman who we saw anoint Jesus' feet and body for burial. She anointed him for burial. Joseph prepares the body for burial. Both are very kind and tender gestures. And now they're both part of the gospel story that we tell. Joseph, in essence, is a beautiful example of how the Christian faith works. Our faith is to be a faith of courage, a faith of love, a faith of action, a doing faith. And Joseph exemplifies that in this courageous act. His courageous request. And so point number two, we move into the significant burial. Verse 59. And Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock. We notice a few things about this. One, we notice it's Joseph's tomb. It doesn't belong to Jesus. Jesus is simply borrowing it. It's a borrowed tomb. And that's a good thing because he's not going to need it very long, is he? These tombs, the tomb was specifically of a rich man, were very different from the common graves of the day or the common tombs. This tomb was likely dug into the side of a hill or a cave. <coughs> and then a great stone, as the scripture speaks of, would be rolled in front of the tomb, and these rich tombs were often, people were, were you know, buried in there, and they wanted to make sure nobody got in, and obviously no one was coming out. But a common grave might have a little stone in front of it just to keep the wild animals and dogs out, but these had a, a pretty good sized stone that was, not one man could just move it, and it would roll into a niche that would made it secure. It says his tomb was a new tomb. No other bodies were in it. Oftentimes, multiple family members were put into the same tomb. But what would happen was the, the bodies would go in there with the spices and the ointments, and, and obviously, they don't have the embalming processes that we have today. So, so the bodies would do what they do, and they're sitting there for a long time. They would put, add in the different spices to make sure there wasn't a massive stench. And then the bodies, once they came down to just being bones, They would gather the bones and put them in an ossuary, a little box, and then that box would go into a niche inside the tomb. And so that's what they were doing. It's a borrowed tomb. It's a new tomb. Just as he came into the world from from the virgin's womb, he came forth again from a virgin tomb. Nobody had ever been in that tomb before. And so when that body came forth and the tomb was empty, there was no possible confusion as to which body would come forth. Also, tombs like this were very expensive. It was, it was a sacrifice for Joseph of Marathea to give his up. However, Jesus would only use it for a few days. Regarding the new tomb, Charles Spurgeon said this, it was a new tomb wherein no remains had previously laid. And thus, if he came forth from it, there would be no suspicion that another had arisen Nor could it be imagined that he rose through touching some old prophet's bones, as he did who 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 was laid in Elisha's grave. You might remember that story from the Old Testament. (coughs) Also, we see (coughs) in his burial the, the the very strong significance that it's another fulfillment that's happening. It's almost as if we're waiting for Matthew to say his famous words: "This was to fulfill." Because Isaiah, hundreds of years before this event took place, in verse, chapter 53, verse 9 said, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. What is Isaiah doing? He's telling exactly what's going on here. He was, his grave was, was destined with the wicked. He was meant to either rot on the cross or to get thrown into some mass unknown grave, and yet God had provided everything he needed exactly how he wanted it. And so his grave was made with the wicked, but with a rich man in his death. He was was executed as a criminal, but the rich man comes in the provision of God to provide exactly what was prophesied. Matthew goes on at verse 59, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Joseph has done his job up to this point. It was getting late. At, at this point, once the Sabbath hits, you don't touch the dead bodies. You don't, you don't do that kind of work. And so they're, they're in a little bit of a hurry to try to get the, the body in the tomb and the stone rolled, rolled away as soon as was possible and that was the customary way to seal an expensive tomb, this this massive stone that was rolled into the entrance. The door of that tomb was typically made of this heavy circular shaped stone running in a groove and it settled down into a channel so it couldn't be moved except by several strong men. Why? So no one would mess with the remains on the inside. And again, we look at such details and it, not only do we find it interesting, but folks, this is central to the Gospel story. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, when the Apostle Paul himself writes to the Corinthians and explains what is the Gospel? What is the good news? What, what is it explaining? And this is important for us because if you ask 100 different Christians what the gospel is, you're going to get about 200 different answers. (laughs) So our answers should hone in on what does Scripture say. Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried. Let me say it again, that He was buried. And that He was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel presentation includes the burial. He died, he was buried, he rose. And that explanation, understanding of the gospel continued on in the Christian faith. As we see several of, of the, the ancient creeds, the, the oldest of which, the apostles' creeds, the apostles' creed. This vital aspect of His burial is included. Reformed in sometime in the 2nd century. Part of the Apostles' Creed says this, I believe in Jesus Christ, His His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day He rose again ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come again to judge the living and the dead the Nicene Creed produced in around 325 AD says he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate he suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures you may ask why is it so important Why do they all mention he was buried? Why is it in the the historic Christian creeds? Well, that's a great question, and you weren't the first to ask it. (laughs) Centuries ago, the godly men who came together to write the Heidelberg Catechism in question 41 asked the question, why was he also buried? And here's the answer, short and sweet. Thereby to prove that he was really dead. Simple, yet profound, and significant. See, this was the additional evidence that he actually had come under the curse of God, as all men are under the curse. He had to be dead, and he had to be really dead. Not mostly dead. (laughs) Really dead. He had to be really dead. For Joseph to go to Pilate in the first place, and other Gospels tell us that Pilate was like surprised that he died so soon, like he's already dead. And he had the centurion go and confirm it, and he came back and said, "Yeah, he's he's dead." Pilate had to agree that Jesus was dead to give the body to Joseph. Jesus had to be really dead for his face and body to be wrapped in this shroud. He wasn't breathing; he was dead. And Joseph witnessed that firsthand. Death is the enemy. Death is the enemy of mortal man. And and Jesus Christ as fully man in the period of His humiliation suffers the greatest of all indignities of humanity, which is death. And then He is buried. He's placed into the earth. Think about it. Think about it. The very Creator of heaven and earth, the very word of God who who speaks the universe into existence is now the one who actually dies on Calvary's tree and is laid into the earth. John Flavel, Puritan, said he must be buried to complete his humiliation. This being the lowest step he could possibly descend to in his abased state. They have brought me to the dust of death. Lower he could not be laid. And so low he must lay his blessed head, else he had not been humbled to the lowest. Why was Jesus buried? Because he truly died. We see witnesses to these things. In verse 61 it tells us that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. These women had seen the crucifixion. They had been with him throughout the process. They had followed Joseph and Nicodemus to the tomb. They saw where the tomb was. Scripture says that they were there. Mark notes in verse 47 of chapter 15 that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Luke 23.55, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. So not only is he buried and, and because he was dead, they're in the upper room. They fled. They're worried. They did not have the boldness of Joseph to confront what might happen to them if they asked for the body of Jesus. The family, the the ones closest to the the executed, to the deceased, they're the ones that are supposed to care for the body. They're the ones that are supposed to put themselves on the line to actually love and, and serve the one whom they supposedly love and serve. Who's not there? Peter, and James, and John, and the others. And that comes into factor as we look at point three in the last part of the text. An ironic security. An ironic security. Irony. There's irony all over Scripture when you dig into it. What is irony? One dictionary states that it's a state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects and is often amusing as a result. It's laughable in one sense. And you say, Brian, we've been in the holy of holies. We've been to the cross. We're now at the tomb. How can such things be in any way? laughable. My mind goes to Psalm 2, where it speaks of those who would mock God. Those who would wish to throw off the restraints, quote-unquote, that God has put on them. And what is God's response? Verse 4 of Psalm 2, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and so no, I'm not surprised at all that even in the most holiest of moments, the Lord God, the one who laughs at the nations who try to stand and fight against Him, sits in heaven and laughs as He holds them in derision. What's ironic about these this whole text and, and these particularly verses sixty-two to sixty-six, J.C. Ryle just explains it very well. And here's what's going to happen. See, their actions, look at it with me, their actions are going to provide the most complete evidence of the truth of Jesus' resurrection. Ryle says this, though they little thought, excuse me, they little thought what they were doing. They little thought that unwittingly they were providing the most complete evidence of the truth of Christ's coming resurrection. They were actually making it impossible to prove that there was any deception or imposition. Their seal, their guard, their precautions were all to become witnesses in just a few hours that Christ had risen. They might as well have tried to stop the tides of the sea or to prevent the sun rising as to prevent Jesus coming forth from the tomb. They were taken in their own craftiness Their own devices became instruments to show forth God's glory. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. Matthew in verse 62 says, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation. Don't we know that already? Aren't we clear? Has he not made it very clear in this very Jewish book what's going on, what day this is? Jesus is crucified when? On the day of preparation. What's the next day? Passover. Shabbat. Sabbath. So Matthew, this is, what is Matthew doing here? He is prodding. This is Matthew's prod right here. He's poking them. He's poking the religious leaders who would revile the king. The next day, that is, Matthew says, after the day of preparation, The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. That word gathered is the word sunago. It's where we get our word synagogue from. What are the Jews, particularly what are the leaders of the Jewish people, what are they supposed to be doing on the Passover, on the the Sabbath Passover? They're supposed to be gathering. Gathering with who? With each other, with their family, in the synagogues, in, in their places of worship. Gathering at the temple. Gathering. Together. And here we have Matthew making sure we understand and know that on the very Sabbath day, the religious leaders of the Jews are synagoguing with the Gentile Pilate. He's poking at them, sticking it in their face. And then in verse 63, and, and he's and they said, Sir, I'm trying to butter him up. Sir. We remember how that imposter or that deceiver they call Jesus. We remember how he said while he was still alive, which means he's what? He's dead, right? We remember when he was still alive, so it means he's what? Dead, and so they're burying him. He said this, after three days I will rise. It's ironic. That the enemies of Jesus remember the promise of his resurrection better than his own disciples remembered the promise of his resurrection. They're hiding. These guys are gathering, synagoguing with the Gentile Pilate. They probably broke the Sabbath law of how far they traveled that day too. And they come and they say to Pilate, he needs you to do something for us, because he said, "After three days, I will rise." So again, they—they they know he's dead. They don't—they don't believe certainly in the swoon theory. Y'all ever heard of the swoon theory? It's a con, just some some crazy idea that denies the resurrection. It's saying that Jesus never really died; he just swooned on the cross. So, chief he was like he was very very asleep he was mostly dead <laughs> and then he wonderfully revived in the tomb there was a, a humorous letter to a christian magazine years ago that i think accurately evaluated the so-called swoon theory it was a letter of dear eutychus and it says dear eutychus our preacher said on Easter, that Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? Sincerely, Bewildered. Dear Bewildered, beat your preacher with a cat of nine tails with 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours and then run a spear through his heart. Embalm him. Put him in an airless tomb for 36 hours and see what happens. Sincerely, Eutychus. (laughs) So certainly, such theories are just ridiculous. But it also proves the insanity of unbelief. The irrational insanity of unbelief. You see, they they remember Jesus saying, I'm going to rise after three days. And so, so, what does unbelief do? Actually, the truth is, Unbelief is just crazy. And and the deeper you go into unbelief and the harder the heart gets, the crazier things become. They remembered what Jesus said and now they're afraid that something somehow is going to happen. And their unbelief was relenting. And again, this such unrelenting unbelief has this irrational insanity to it. Unbelief actually drives people to demonstrate by their actions, listen, not that they don't believe the truth, but that they hate the truth. And they're doing everything possible to fight against the truth. It's this veiled suppression of the truth. It's Romans 1. It's trying to push the beach ball full of air under the water, and keep it down. But truth has a funny way of just popping right back up. In their unrelenting unbelief, in their craziness, they give this ironic request to Pilate in verse 64. They say, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And then the last fraud will be worse than the first. Do I have to remind you where the disciples are right now? And what are they worried about? They might come get him. They might be bold enough to, to like come get him. They're scared to death, they're not remembering the promise of Christ. The enemies do. These followers are hiding. And so Pilate, not really understanding in the language his motive, but I kind of see this as his way of chuckling at them maybe a bit, because I believe he understood that Christ was innocent. We've seen that already. He kind of knew it, and he did what was politically expedient for himself. And so he says in verse 65, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. They had temple police, Roman officials assigned to them, Roman soldiers assigned to the temple as a guard. He's like, you already got your own soldiers. Do what you want with them. In verse 66, and so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And all of this is being done in such a way that it's going to display the vast limitations of human power. These guys, these soldiers are going to be like toy soldiers with Nerf guns lining up for battle against the United States Marine Corps. Vain men, says Matthew Poole, as if the same power that was necessary to raise and quicken the dead could not also remove the stone and break through the watch that they had set. So they go and make the tomb secure. They seal it. They put what make I don't know, like kind of like modern-day caution tape. They would take a wax and melt it and uh, and put it around the edges of the, the 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 door, the the stone, to make sure it's not broken. Right? It's like an envelope. Once you open it, you can tell. As they put a seal on it, the, probably the insignia of the governor is there, and the guards are now set in place. In Psalm 2, verse 7 comes to mind again. As the psalmist says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You're my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me... And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. And the cry goes out to the religious leaders, fearful of the dead man cry goes out to the soldiers who would be standing guard. Be warned and be wise. The tomb was secured by a stone, this material object. The tomb was secured by a seal, the object of human authority, the obstacle of this human authority. That stone was secured by the authority of the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire on the face of the planet. And then the tomb is secured by a guard, which is this obstacle of human strength. Men who, if they were derelict in their duty and somehow allowed this tomb to be disturbed in any way, would have their very lives on the line. And none of these obstacles mattered, did they? They all fall away before the power of Almighty God. The material obstacles, the, the human authority, the, the human strength, none of it stands before the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus Christ. And oh the irony. Chapter 27 ends with Jesus in the grave, with seal and, and guard. But oh, how our God loves to turn around things according to His good pleasure and will. Amen? Let me read something encouraging to you that encouraged my soul. J.C. Ryle commenting on this passage says this, the history of the church of Christ is full of examples of a similar kind. The very things that have seemed most unfavorable to God's people have often turned out to be for their good. What harm did the persecution which arose about Stephen do to the church of Christ? Those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word, Acts 8:4). What harm did imprisonment do Paul? It gave him time to write many of those epistles which are now read all over the world. What real harm did the persecution of Bloody Mary do to the cause of the English Reformation? The blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. What harm does persecution do to the people of God at this very day? It only drives them nearer to Christ. It only makes them cling more closely to the throne of grace, the Bible, and prayer. Let all true Christians lay these things to heart and take courage. We live in a world where all things are ordered by the hand of perfect wisdom and where all things are working together continually for the good of the, of the body of Christ. The powers of this world are only tools in the hands of God. He is ever using them for His own purposes, however little they may be aware of it. And they are the instruments by which He is ever squaring and polishing the living stones of His spiritual temple and all their schemes and plans will only turn to His praise. How encouraging is this? so let us be patient in the days of trouble and darkness and look forward. The very things which now seem against us are all working together for God's glory, but we see half now. Yet in a little while we shall see all, and we shall then discover that all the persecution we now endure was like the seal and the guard tending to God's glory. God can make the wrath of man praise Him. I wonder what unfavorable things are in your life right now. The day looked bleak and dark. Those closest to him are hiding. The human authorities have risen up to do their duty and make sure that this quote-unquote criminal never comes out of that. And now, that very stage is the stage that is now set for the pinnacle of redemption. We've been climbing Mount Matthew for 117 And in a sense, the grave of every Christian is borrowed. It's temporary. Every grave is temporary for the believers in Christ. Why? Because hope is come. Because Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. And he died a sacrificial death. And he was buried because he really died. And God Raised him from the dead. And that same God will give life to your mortal bodies. Christ is born. Christ has died. Christ was buried. Christ is risen. Joe, let me have you come and prepare music as we get our hearts ready for communion. And so how do we respond? Respond by trusting Him. Again, these disciples' lives are about to be transformed in just a few hours. (laughs) They're going to become the world changers that God uses. They're cowering in fear today. But know this, that just as God took the very things that humans were fighting against Him in, Let's seal it. Let's put a guard. Let's go. All of these things are the very things that God used to without a doubt show that Jesus truly rose from the grave. He turned it all on him. And right now, no matter what's going on in your life, in your family, in your marriage, no matter what troubles you're in the midst of, no matter how hard of a season it might be, God, this same God is doing a billion things behind and underneath and all around you that you could never even see. You'll never know until glory. Maybe even not then, I don't know, but but what He's doing and what He's working is for our good. Let's trust Him. Let's take joy in Him. Let's respond as Psalm 2 calls us to. In verse 11, let's serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Let's kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Let's bless. Let's understand that blessed are all who take refuge in Him. We'll do that now as we celebrate the Communion together. And so, if I have some brothers get ready with the elements, we'll be passed in just a moment. And as we pass these elements let's un- understand this guys this is not some type of ritual that we're just supposed to take for granted right here this communion and these elements and and I can't wait for the day where we do a little better with just than the plastic and the taste of the, that nasty white thing that's in there but that's what we got today but what that speaks of that our hearts and minds and grasp our hearts can worship and respond to we can we can take it today and we should with Thanksgiving worship we can say hallelujah Lamb of God for sinners hallelujah hallelujah Jesus Christ we praise you. We're going to sing this song together as Joe leads us as the elements are passed. Today I'd ask you just to hang on to it. Let's take it all together today. Hold it in your hand and meditate on Christ lived. Christ died. Christ was buried. And Christ rose. So Father, we ask that as we prepare our hearts to take the Holy Communion, you would let us know that we're not worthy of it except in Christ. And so, Father, we know that this bread and this cup speaks of Your death, and we remember that death until You come. And today, as we've been able to look at the burial and how important it is to the Gospel, we understand a bit more of what You've done. So we celebrate this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pass the elements as we stand.